Amen. Well, this morning we kick off a six-week series called The Sinfulness of Sin from Romans chapter 1 to 3. If you're new with us, welcome. So glad you're here. What we do here at Southside is work through books of the Bible, verse by verse. And so the point of the sermon will be the point of the passage before us. And the next few weeks are going to be hard because Romans 1 to 3 is hard. It's namely about sin. And the doctrine of sin is very unpopular today. Really, the only sin today is to talk about sin. But God knows best. God is wiser than we are. And if we truly love people, we must tell the truth. It's actually a loving thing to speak about sin. It's unloving to not. It's unloving to not tell the truth. It would be a terrible physician who acquiesced to a patient's own inaccurate self-diagnosis. And so with us, with humility and patience and prayer, we need to talk about sin. And we need to talk about the fact that it's actually a lot worse than we think. Even in the church, it's a lot worse than we think. And we must talk about sin because if we don't, we'll really never see our need for Christ and we'll never really truly appreciate the glory of grace. So we'll be looking at Romans 1, verse 18 to 23 this morning. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 883. And parents, just a heads up, you'll want to read ahead Romans 1, 24 to 32 for next week and just be prepared for the discussion based upon that passage. And all these verses are connected to what has come before. And we know that because there's this little connecting word, for. I recently heard that Harvard used to assign their incoming law students to the book of Romans. They would have to study the book of Romans because of its tightly knit logic. And we see that here in these verses. So we saw back a few weeks ago, verse 14 and 15, Paul said he's eager to preach the gospel. And then he tells us why in verse 16. For I'm not ashamed. I'm eager because I'm not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed? And he tells us, because for the gospel is the power of God to salvation. How? He tells us in verse 17, for because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Why is the righteousness of God necessary? He tells us in the text this morning, verse 18, for because the wrath of God is revealed. So let's look at the text. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So this morning, let's consider the wrath of God, the evidence for God, and the knowledge of God from Romans 1, 18 to 23. So first we have the wrath of God there in verse 18. Let's look at it one more time. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And again, this is connected to what has come before by that little word for connected to that previous verse. The previous verse said that this gift of a right standing, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel and we desperately need that gift of righteousness. Why? Verse 18, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The gospel of God's righteousness, the good news, it's not just to make us happy. It's not just to free us from guilt. It's not just to give us purpose. Praise God, the gospel does all those things. But that's not the main thing. Those are actually problems within us. Those are what we might call subjective subjective problems. And the thing about subjective problems, they can find subjective solutions. And so maybe you chose Jesus to gain a sense of purpose, but someone else might find a sense of purpose in Mormonism. Someone else might find a sense of purpose in yoga. You chose Jesus to solve your problem and struggle with anxiety, but Xanax, Xanax may work just fine for someone else. Subjective problems can have subjective solutions, but we have something, a problem that is outside of us. We have an objective problem. Praise God, we also have an objective solution, a solution that is outside of us. The gospel, praise God, does bring all sorts of subjective blessings, purpose and meaning and freedom from guilt and all those things. But the good news is good news first and foremost, fundamentally, because it saves us from the wrath of God. It's amazing to me and discouraging and sometimes very frustrating how many preachers and teachers of the Bible never talk about God's wrath, even though the Bible talks about it in every book. The wrath of God is just dismissed today, regularly, increasingly. Bible translators soften the message. Bible curriculum eliminates it altogether. Hymnals try to change words. I've shared with you before, one of our hymns that we sing, it's a modern day hymn that we sing regularly here is in Christ alone. And the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America put out a new hymnal and tried to change the words. Wanted to change that phrase that says, because on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change that to on the cross, the love of God was magnified. And they asked permission from the writers of the hymn, uh, Stuart Townen and, and Keith Getty. And they said, no, you can't change the line of the hymn. You can't soften it. And they were right because it's a fundamental part of the gospel. They had read Romans 1, 16 to 18 rightly. And we'll hear things often today like, well, my God is a God of love. My God would never do that. My God is not a God of wrath. But brothers and sisters, we don't have the option of making God up. The only God with which we have to do is the one who has revealed himself in Scripture. And the wrath of God is taught all over the Bible. John Stott puts it this way. He says, We cheapen the gospel if we represented it as a deliverance only from unhappiness, fear, guilt, and other felt needs instead of as a rescue from the coming wrath. Now, for sure, God's wrath is not like our wrath. Maybe that's why it gets dismissed. Our wrath is, there is such a thing as self-righteous anger, but oftentimes our wrath is self-centered and sinful and irrational and out of control. God's wrath is not like that. And God's wrath is certainly not like the capricious Greek false gods. But the wrath of God is his settled and righteous anger. It is his personal hatred of sin. He's holy, as we've been singing. Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. 
Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Now, these are not coffee cup verses, but they're true. Yes, he is loving, but he's also righteous and holy. In fact, the book of Romans in many ways is all about the problem of the wrath of God and the solution in Christ. Look with me over to the next page, chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. Look down a few verses at verse 8. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Look over at chapter 4, verse 15. The law brings wrath. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified, again, we'll talk more about that at five tonight if you can come, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Flip over to chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Flip over to chapter 12, verse 19. This is a pervasive theme. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The wrath of God is revealed and it's revealed from heaven. So whoever is under heaven, that's all of us, but not yet under grace is under wrath. And we tend to think of the wrath of God as just judgment day. And that's true. We saw that just now in several verses, the day of wrath. But in these verses in Romans chapter 1, we see that God's wrath is being revealed even now, starting in the first century. Next week, we'll see how more of it is being revealed. But for now, look back at chapter 1 and let's just get a glimpse. Look at chapter 1, verse 24. How is the wrath of God being revealed? Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up. In the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. And so the way the wrath of God is manifesting itself in our current day is not with thunderbolts and lightning and thunder. It's with God letting us go our own way. God giving us up over to our sin because that's what provokes the wrath of God notice what what causes the wrath of God chapter 1 verse 18 the wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth so what provokes the wrath of God our sin ungodliness unrighteousness ungodliness is sin against God unrighteousness is wicked against wickedness against people Rather than fulfill the great commandment to love God and love people, we've done the opposite. Ungodliness is living as if there were no God. Doesn't have to look really rebellious to live your life in such a way that there is no God. It's wanting God out, and since we can't get God out, it's living like we were successful and snubbing him out anyway. The way chapter 3 will put it in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what it means to be ungodly, living without the fear of God living as if God doesn't matter. 
And unrighteousness is wickedness. And these things are what provoke the wrath of God. And it says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They know the truth and they suppress it. They try to hide the truth. They try to keep it away. They try to hold it at bay. The image I get is if you've ever been in a swimming pool, seeing a kid with a beach ball, you know, trying to put it down, right? It just keeps popping up. That's the image. The truth is there and it's clear as we will see. But what is the response to the truth without the grace of God? People suppress it. They want to put it down. Our sin has made us avoid the truth. Our sin has made us liars. And so, friends, the wrath of God is our fundamental problem. Really, we are our fundamental problem in our sin. But our sin provokes the wrath of God. And so the Spirit of God wants us to feel this. Again, God is wiser than we are. He wants us to feel our desperation. Notice he starts with the bad news here. Last week, we saw the thesis statement about the gospel of God's righteousness, and then he jumps right into bad news, and we're going to stay in bad news for until we get to Romans 3.21. We must feel our lostness before we can be found. We must see our plight in order to be saved. So if we don't believe the Bible's teaching here, even though it's hard, the gospel will not thrill us like it should. So that's the wrath of God. Next notice the evidence for God there in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse and so now we're told what truth it is they suppress it's the truth that God exists it's the truth of creation that they suppress God has made himself plain it says he's shown us all all people this verse says know the power and deity of God his attributes have been clearly perceived from all history this verse says all people have known there is a God because of creation Just look around. All people know of his attributes, specifically his power and his nature. Just look at the things that have been made, he says. This is what is known as general revelation. It's the idea that everybody, God has revealed himself to everybody in some way, generally. So all people know that God exists. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Everyone can see the heavens. What do they do? They declare God's glory. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And general revelation is distinct from special revelation, the word of God and the gospel message. In these verses, we learn that general revelation is enough to leave people with no excuse, but it is not enough to save them. Special revelation is needed to be saved. Some people try to say that, well, there are people and they can just look at creation and God can save them that way. That teaching is not found in this chapter. It's not found anywhere in scripture. It's really a good test. Again, this is hard stuff. This is a good test for us to know how well do we really understand the gospel as a whole man on the island. What about the innocent man on the island? Well, if we read scripture, we learn one, there is no innocent man. There's none good. No, not one. Romans 3 will tell us. But here it says, God has made it plain that his creator. But what's the response to that revelation? It's not reception. It's rebellion. 
The ungodly suppress the truth in rebellion, which is why we are so committed to missions, is it not? Flip over to Romans 10. We've got to get the gospel out. Romans 10, verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Special revelation is needed. General revelation is insufficient. The gospel is needed to save. And verse 20 ends by saying, they're without excuse. It's plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Famous atheist Bertrand Russell was one time asked, you know, what are you going to do if one day you're wrong and you go to judgment day and you realize God does exist? What will you say to him? Bertrand Russell said, I'll say, sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? Not according to this verse. The atheist who says it's not plain is not telling the truth. God has made it plain. Every person knows that God exists, regardless of what they tell themselves. They know there is a God who created all things and to whom they will give account. He's made it plain here through creation. So that's the evidence for God. Now let's turn to the knowledge of God. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they knew God, again, they know God. All people know him, not in a saving relationship, but they know of his power. They know he exists. Every person knows God. Sometimes we talk about trying to get people into a personal relationship with God. Every single person has a personal relationship with God. The question is, is it a saving relationship with God? That's the question. The question is, do we submit to the truth or do we seek to suppress the truth? All people know. These verses tell us every person knows. They're, they know outwardly and they have an innate sense of the divine. God has stitched his existence into the minds of every single person so they know through creation. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They knew him and they didn't honor him. They didn't give him the glory due his name. They know he exists, but they refuse to acknowledge him with their lips and with their lives. That's our problem. We live for our own glory rather than the glory of God. Although they knew God, he says, they did not give thanks to him. Isn't that striking? Ingratitude. Because everything we have and everything they have is received, right? Everything is a gift from the ground to walk on to the legs to walk with, the lungs to breathe, the air we need. Everything is a gift. And rather than thank God in our sin, unbelievers seek to snuff him out. Ingratitude really does express our own self-idolization. 
It expresses the fact that we worship ourselves rather than God. Ingratitude is no small thing. We've made ourselves an idol. We've tried to put us in the place of God. People who don't thank God think they did it all themselves. We're divine plagiarists. Students, you know about plagiarism, right? The game's changed. I mean, they got software now. When I was in high school, actually it was middle school, internet was fairly new. And so we were learning how to plagiarize. And so I remember eighth grade AP English, we had this teacher named Miss Jackson, and she gave us this assignment to go do a biographical sketch of Willa Cather. And so we go, and we're just learning the internet, and our teacher didn't really understand the internet yet and what we could do. And so we just copied, pasted, right? Everybody copied and pasted. And we go back next day, and she'd begin to read the papers, and they all sounded the same. Like, okay, clearly somebody's cheating. She talked with other, other teachers and realized, oh, they just copied and pasted, and she came in and lit us up. Her name was Miss Jackson. She was a little old lady, little lady, but she was, man, she was a firecracker. And so she's lighting us up, going off, and then she goes, you know, blasting everybody except for Blake. And I had the brilliance to go to page two <laughs> of the search results. Now, it wasn't Google. I think it was like AskJeeves.com. But I went to page two. No one ever goes to page two on search engines. It's lonelier than the third verse of a Baptist hymn. <laughs> I was clear. And so she starts bragging on me. Now, Blake, because he included this detail and this detail, and I'm just behind him. And again, it was AP English, just like me and two dudes and the rest were girls. And I'm just like, you know, I'm just eating it up. But a student in the class, Nickel Cribs. Nickel Cribs had read the one that I stole. And she's, nah, he stole that from the internet too. I read that one. And so I was busted. Teacher was hot. And what could I say except, sorry, Ms. Jackson. <laughs> I was taking credit for someone else's work. That's what plagiarism is, right? Taking credit for someone else's work. We are all divine plagiarists. We take the credit. We put ourselves in the place of God. We don't acknowledge our dependence upon him. We claim to be independent. We give no thanks. G.K. Chesterton said it's really hard when an atheist is really thankful, but he's got no one to thank. The ultimate sin of humanity is not only refusing to honor God, we've claimed the honor for ourselves. And notice that sin also affects the way we think. It's called the noetic effects of the fall. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Sin makes us irrational. Our thinking before Christ, it was Futile, it was worthless. Colossians 1 says that we were hostile in mind. Ephesians 4 says this about us before coming to Christ. We walked in the futility, worthlessness of our mind. We were darkened in our understanding. We were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us due to the hardness of our heart. That was us. Every person apart from Christ. Futile minds, darkened understanding, ignorant, hard-hearted. Again, the news is worse than we even imagine. This was us before Christ saved us. Sin messed up our mind. Sin 
stupefied us. Let's get down to verse 28. Romans 1, 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. If we were to translate that real rigidly, it'd say something like this. They did not approve God to have in their knowledge. They didn't approve God in their minds. NIV puts it this way. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Sin is much more serious than we moderns tend to think. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or thank him. Rather, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Before coming to Christ, our hearts were foolish. Our hearts were darkened. Our hearts were sick. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We were fools in the sense that the fool is the one who says God does not exist. We didn't fear him. And remember, the Proverbs say again and again and again that the beginning of wisdom, the opposite of foolishness, is the fear of the Lord. Romans 3.18, there was no fear of God before their eyes. Our hearts are sick, desperately sick, Jeremiah says. The world says, follow your hearts. The Bible says, don't. It will deceive you. Jeremiah 17, 9, Ephesians 4 speaks of deceitful desires. We've got to know that as Christians. Our sinful desires want to deceive us. We ought not trust ourselves. We ought to trust the word of God. Sin causes people to deceive themselves. Atheists then, this verse says, are not really atheists. They know the truth. They suppress it. It's what Romans 1 says. As has been said, there are really two tenets to atheism. Number one, there is no God. Number two, I hate him. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. Be very sure of this. People never reject the Bible because they cannot understand it. They understand it only too well. They understand that it condemns their own behavior. They understand that it witnesses against their own sins and summons them to judgment. They try to believe it is false and useless because they do not like to allow it is true. They know the truth and suppress it in unrighteousness. Those outside of faith are caught in a downward spiral of disobedience that leads to denial. Sin that leads to the suppression of truth. I remember seeing an interview with Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is one of the newer, really angry atheists. And uh, Ben Stein, you know Ben Stein, Jewish guy, famous for clear eyes. He got dry eyes and red eyes, clear eyes. The difference is clear, clear eyes. You remember that? <laughs> so he's sitting across from Richard Dawkins, and Ben Stein's a big advocate of intelligent design. He's not a Christian, but he's an advocate of intelligent design. And he asks him, you know, could there be any way? What if we found out without a doubt, I think it's actually without a doubt now, but in terms of genetics and strands and design and everything, what if we could without a doubt know there's design in the universe? If it was totally scientifically provable, what would you say? And Richard Dawkins says, well, I suppose that could happen and it would have to look like this. In a previous era, there would have to have been a species that got so evolved that they then designed life and seeded it onto our planet. So he affirms it's not so much intelligent design that Richard Dawkins is against. It's just certain types of intelligent design, namely ones that involve a personal God. He would rather 
have aliens who evolved and seeded life onto our planet than allow a God. Dawkins knows. Romans 1 says Dawkins knows. He just doesn't want to know. But it gets worse. Look at verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice how similar that sounds to Genesis 126. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Humans were supposed to be those who ruled over the created order on behalf of God in Genesis 1. And now in our sin, we seek to exchange the created order in place of God. God has made us in his image and we seek to return the favor. We seek to replace God. In other words, we were idolaters. We exchanged the glory of God for things and images and animals. And when he says creeping things, I can't help but think of the serpent in the garden in Genesis 2 and 3. And what does he lie? What does he say? He said, don't trust God's word. You won't die. Notice that the first doctrine that is denied in Scripture is the doctrine of judgment. Don't trust his word. You won't die. You need to do this and you will be like God. The creeping thing comes in and says, you should replace God with yourself. And he's been telling the t same lie ever since. And this word here for animals in Romans 1, that we exchange for birds and animals is actually a more specific word. Maybe your translation says four-footed animals. I think here we have an allusion to the golden calf. Do you remember that story? God frees his people from Egypt. And Moses goes up on the mount. And they get impatient and they say, hey, let's have your jewelry and let's melt it down and let's make a calf and then we will give it the glory. This is what delivered us from Egypt. Exchanging God for a four-footed animal. Here's how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 106. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. All people have exchanged the one true God for false gods. All are idolaters. All people worship everyone. Every single person is a worshiper. Every single person lives for someone or something. Something captures our imagination. Something keeps us up at night. Something grabs our heart's most fundamental allegiance. And we must be. We're created to worship, hardwired to worship. We are, as human beings, a purposed people. And if we don't worship the only one worthy of worship, we will find a replacement in our sin and exchange. Rather than honor him, what do we do? We exchange him. Notice how many times he says that. He says it in Romans 1, 23. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Look at verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
In other words, again, we seek to replace God. Idols, we tend to think of little wooden figures, and of course that's true in the Bible. That's what we read about in Isaiah, and it's so foolish that we'll take the same idol and make food and stay warm and then turn around and bow down before it. Isaiah mocking idolatry there. But in the Bible, it's also much more subtle than that, and we're guilty of the same sin. It's anything we look to other than God to find our identity and our security and our comfort and our value and our joy. It's anything more important to us than the Lord. Anything we seek to give us, only that which God can give. Anything can become a, heart, a God replacement in our heart, anything. John Calvin said our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. Our hearts are creatively deceptive. So an idol can be a thing, it can be a property, it can be a person, it can be something we do, it can be a role, it can be a place, it can be a hope, it can be an image. Anything that takes God's place in our affections and priorities, those things that give our lives meaning. An idol is something that we will put God aside to get and put God aside if we don't get. It can be beauty, it can be power, it can be money, it can be achievement, it can be significance, it can be safety, it can be comfort, it can be family, marriage, children, sex, dogs, love. It can be anything. And each has its shrine. The youth sports field, that corner office, that ivory tower, the spa, the gym, the studio, the stadium. All people have lords they live for. And there's only one liberating Lord. Only one Lord that liberates. All the rest are enslaving and they lead to disappointment and destruction. As Tim Keller often says, Jesus is the only Lord who will deliver you from disappointment and destruction. The only Lord who will satisfy your deepest longings. And unlike every other Lord, when you disappoint him, he'll forgive you and restore you. That's the good news of the gospel.